0: Today we'll be listening to the story of the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. Even the name of the league sounds like an oxymoron. The old trope of hockey being the whitest sport is still a big meme in society. But this league predates the National Hockey League by decades, and laid the groundwork for what hockey became. So learn the story of the men who created a unique symbol of independence in a hostile environment, and how politics took it all away. I'm Jasper Hudson. And this is stuff I've read. January, 1904. Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a frosty Sunday morning as people shuffle to their seats at the ice rink. The sold-out crowd is warming the rink with their own cheers and bodies. On the ice, two teams face off for an exhibition. One of them looks exactly how a hockey team in Canada is supposed to look. Big, burly, frontiers gentlemen, almost as wide as they are tall. They're talented skaters in particular, and they play the right way. Slow, exacting, precise. The other team is different. For one thing, they're a bit smaller than their opponents. They play a fast-paced, loose style, almost looks chaotic. They aim to score goals on quick counter-attacks, they don't seem to bother much with keeping possession. They don't mind getting physical, but they prefer speed to power. Also... Every single one of them is black. This match was just one of several exhibitions between an established professional white team and an all-black charter member of the Colored Hockey League. And, as happened a decent amount of the time, the black team won. That was kind of a big deal. White sports dominance was supposed to prove that they were the superior race. So when black people could beat white people, well, threw a big wrench in the whole racism thing. Didn't make it go away, of course, but better. Also, whenever that happened, the black team beat the white team, the white team would usually never play black team again. The logic was like, well, black people are bad at hockey. We know that. They have to be. If we got beat by them, we must be really bad. So we shouldn't play them anymore, because that's embarrassing. But that's stupid. The Colored Hockey League was full to the brim with talented athletes. A lot of them played baseball in the summer, and hockey was a means of staying in shape in the off-season. But exercise wasn't the reason why the league was started. The Colored Hockey League was founded for two distinct reasons. Reasons which could be easily separated from one another, and you'd still probably have a solid basis for a league. But together, they formed a powerful and motivating idea. And they were ideas that the Founders believed in powerfully. To understand those reasons, we need to understand the Founders. Henry Sylvester Williams was born... uh, well, nobody's actually sure when he was born. He was either born in Barbados in 1867, or in Trinidad in 1869. Either way, he would have been born a subject of the British Empire, and he was a black subject of the British Empire at a time when that empire was undergoing serious changes. By the time Williams was born, slavery had been banned for decades. But the old paternalistic and racist ideas that led to slavery were still very prominent. Mainstream science, religion, and culture believed that black people were not capable of intellectual pursuits or government. They were thought of to be some combination of genetically inferior, poorly trained, or cursed from their founding as a race, and as a consequence, shouldn't be viewed as equals. But those ideas were finally starting to be seriously challenged, as black intellectuals were able to articulate and explain what was so wrong and so demeaning about those concepts. The idea of a civilized black man was becoming more accepted, even if the belief was still in the superiority of Western culture, and that only by adopting Western culture could a black person gain value as a person. That's still a form of white supremacy. It was because of this begrudging recognition that black people were actually capable of reason and intellect that Williams was able to gain teaching certification in Trinidad at just the age of 17. He became one of the founding members of the teachers' union on the island, and he went on for just a few years teaching all manner of subjects, piano and singing and arithmetic and all those good things that uh, children need to learn. But something motivated him to leave his island and strike out into the unknown. Being influenced by several educated Trinidadians, he started to develop what we would probably now call race consciousness, the realization that black people were not treated well, and at least a general idea of what should be done to fix it. So, leaving for New York at about 21 years of age, he intended to use his capacity to learn and to study to read the law. With that education, he could advocate for the rights of not just his fellow islanders on Trinidad, but all black people subject to the British Empire. Arriving in the U.S., he got something that everyone gets when they move to New York City. Disappointment. Being an accomplished and educated teacher from Trinidad didn't buy much in the Big Apple. Instead of getting work as a teacher to pay his way through university, he got work as a shoeshine to pay his way through lunch. It didn't take long for him to realize this wasn't going anywhere. So he moved back to the British Empire, just this time up the Hudson. He headed for Canada. Halifax, to be specific. In Halifax, he found a law school willing to accept him, Dalhousie University, but he was one of the first black entrants to that law school. Also in Halifax, Williams found one of the most well-established and historic black communities in Canada. Many black people lived in a neighborhood just outside the city limits called Afriqueville. Mm. The story of Afriqueville. In 1901, black people made up 0.22% of the Canadian population. Today. They make up about three and a half percent. What happened in the past 119 years? Immigration. Today, the majority of black Canadians can trace their heritage back to the Caribbean, not unlike Henry Sylvester Williams. This is a recent phenomenon in Canadian history. Until the 1962 Immigration Act, hardly anybody from these countries were allowed in. Hardly anyone from anywhere was allowed in, in fact. So how did that tiny black population arrive in Canada before the loosening of immigration laws? Well, a handful were descended from slaves who were brought to Canada by those who had enslaved them. When slavery was banned in 1803, they were freed and found ways to survive in the Great White North. But released Canadian slaves was a tiny minority of an already very small minority of black people. Canada never had many enslaved people. Think about where there tended to be a lot of slaves back when that was still legal in the West, and where their descendants are now. That would be places like the American South, Alabama, Georgia, states that still have huge black populations, and countries in the Caribbean like Jamaica and the Bahamas. What do those places all have in common? Long hot summers and humid weather. Long growing seasons. Great places to grow cash crops like cotton, sugar, tobacco. So, the opposite of Canada, a country which sometimes doesn't even have a summer. It's a short growing season and not all that great land for growing those kinds of uh, luxury items that demand huge prices. While Canada was not an attractive destination to bring slaves, it was an attractive destination for freed men and women. See, the British Empire banned slavery decades before America did. So if you were enslaved and you managed to escape, would you rather head to some place like New York, where there was a large black community, but a risk that you could be captured and returned under the Fugitive Slave Act? Or would you rather head to Canada, which did not have nearly as big a black population or as strong a community, but where you could live freely without the risk of being taken back? Most people chose the former. They took the risk and they stayed in the U.S. But you can understand why a large number took the latter and escaped all the way to Canada. And that wasn't all. Sometimes the British actively encouraged the arrival of escaped slaves. These were termed black loyalists. During the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the British tried to harm the American economy by offering amnesty to any slaves who left behind their captors and fought for the British, to later be settled in Canada. It was a risk that most slaves were unwilling or unable to make. What if the British reneged on the deal? What if I got caught while I was escaping? Do I really trust the British to follow through on everything that they're promising? Will I end up poor and broke in a new country where I don't know anybody? But for those who did take the risk, freedom was the reward. But that freedom was relative. The black loyalists were promised land, and they received the worst and most unworkable land that could be found. Not to mention they were given less than promised. Canada did eventually enact some segregation laws in some provinces, and also the informal sort of social segregation that still exists in a lot of places. Canada is not some kind of utopian post-racial paradise and it never has been. That's where the story of Afriqueville starts. Black people, many of them formerly enslaved or the children of those who had been, found work digging the streets and building the homes of an expanding Halifax. Nova Scotia was the place to go for the kind of work that black people were allowed to do. But Halifax was not the place for them to live. Instead, they were unwelcome in the place they'd helped to create and founded their own community outside the city. Built around a small wooden Baptist church and a well, the place was halfway between a suburb and a shantytown, with small wooden houses that almost looked like they were about to topple over at any given time. They say winters were especially hard in Afriqueville because the houses weren't insulated and they had holes in them. The town of Halifax didn't exactly ignore the neighborhood, though. For one thing, they charged them taxes, even though they were outside the city limits. The reasoning went, they were close enough to benefit from city services. However, the government didn't extend city services to the neighborhood because it was outside the city limits. That circular logic tells you a lot about how Halifax viewed this neighborhood as something to be exploited. And it didn't stop there. Not only did the city deprive them of things like clean water and sewage disposal, but they also actively treated the area as an industrial park. Prisons, factories, all kinds of unpleasant stuff got put out in the vicinity of Afriqueville. The residents complained, but what could they do? They didn't vote on these allocations because they were outside the city limits. So when Williams came into Halifax, he found a city with a distinct black community, which was unusual in Canada. He found a group of people hungry for some recognition, some dignity, some respect. He also found three like-minded men of some stature in the community, and together they formed a plan. One of these was the pastor of the local Baptist church, James Borden, and another was a lay preacher and businessman called James A.R. Kinney. These guys were both firebrand types of personalities, motivated and passionate, and highly involved in local politics. The third was a black lawyer, the sort of man that Williams wanted to become. His name was James Johnston. They all bonded over their shared admiration for the American writer Booker T. Washington. The philosophy of Booker T. Washington really helps to understand why the Colored Hockey League came into existence. Now, a lot of his ideas are controversial now, and were back then for sort of opposite reasons. Back then, he suggested that black people could be uplifted by the activity of the privileged among them, uh, setting a good example. That was controversial then, because it suggested that black people were capable of equality, and controversial now, because it suggests that they weren't already equal, and had to in some way be prepared or lifted up to that level. Now, to be fair, there was people who criticized him on that level back then, but those voices weren't heard so much as the people who were criticizing him for racist reasons. Washington kind of had the idea that nobody was ready yet for desegregation. So he wanted to use the resources of the black community to create really good alternatives to the mainstream white activities of culture so that black people could have nice things without pushing things too far towards politically unpopular ideas like civil rights and equality. Eventually, the theory went, everyone would realize that black people are just as capable as whites, and racism would be disproven. Mixed results, of course, came from that. I mean, most people nowadays would recognize that uh, LeBron James, a black man, is the best basketball player in the world, but that hasn't stopped those same people from occasionally having racist beliefs. So these four fellows up in Nova Scotia decided they would try to adapt this idea. Create something for the black community that would serve as a symbol of their equality and in some areas even their superiority to what was going on in white culture at the time. Realizing that hockey was formalizing to the point that it had become both a cultural monolith and a profitable enterprise, they drafted the code for the Colored Hockey League and gave it a name that has not aged well. Williams leaves the story at this point. In 1895, he helped found the League and then left Canada to pursue the sort of ridiculously accomplished life that people used to live. He practiced law in London, he entered an interracial marriage, he advocated for the civil rights of black people in South Africa, he founded the Pan-Africa Conference, he returned to England to run for local office, becoming one of the first black elected officials in England, before returning to Trinidad to practice law and dying at the rape old age of 42. But back to the League. The rule book that they wrote was pretty sparse. The official rules stated very few actual penalties, infractions, or rules of any kind, really. It's said that their only rule book was the Bible. And that brings us to the second reason for the founding of the League. Although maybe we should actually call it the first. You recall that two of the founders were heavily involved in the local Baptist church, and that heavily informed their development of the League. See, each of the initial teams in the League were founded by churches, and rival churches would play each other on Sundays to encourage young black men to attend the games then, since they were already out and about and in their Sunday clothes, remember this was back when everybody dressed up for everything, you might as well come on into church. Now exactly what the no rules except for the Bible means is pretty hazy. It seems like they didn't have a lot of official um, infractions like offsides and icing, which as a very casual hockey viewer I applaud because I don't really understand what those rules are supposed to do. This allowed the players to actually play a more freestyle. It sounds kind of uh, puritanical and restrictive, but it wasn't that at all. In fact, uh, the style of hockey played was really all out. Back then, mainstream hockey was very formal. It was a grinding kind of game, and it was played by guys who loved rules. I think it had a lot of strategic similarities with like rugby. The goal is more to wear down the opponent before you try and get in a goal or try, in rugby's case. The difference between the kind of hockey played by the Colored Hockey League and the kind that was played by the mainstream white leagues was kind of like the difference between um, square dance. Oh, no. (laughs) Don't do square dancing. That's that's not original. There's got to be a better metaphor out there. Um, I'll think of something. Crowds actually responded better to the new, fresh style, as crowds often do. A lot of their games were sold out. Fans liked the physical style and the shots from all angles. They loved the fast, dangerous skating and the hard hits these created. They loved, okay, I thought of something. The white style of hockey was like Frank Sinatra, and the black style was like Cab Calloway. And if you're less than 90, those uh, references might not mean much to you, but. Basically, yeah, the, the white style was very um, orderly and deliberate, and the black style was a little less uh, tight, a little uh, looser, and a lot more showman Okay, that might not have made it, it any more clear, but that's what we're going with. This is really when hockey changed from that gentleman's game to what it is now, fast and a little more rough around the edges. The white players took a lot of notes in sort of play philosophy from their black counterparts. The league produced a lot of pioneers. The first recorded slap shot was by a CHL player. They think that he was probably one of those who played baseball in the uh, summertime, so that's kind of the same motion. In fact, some people actually call the black style hockey baseball hockey because they kind of came at it with a baseball playing style. And uh, one guy, his trademark was was just launching himself at people. They called it a flying check, just boom, jump off the skates, who cares? But one of the most influential individuals from the league was an unusual fellow by the rather typical name of Henry Franklin. Franklin was a goalie, and in many ways, the first modern goalie. Goalies before him were not that different from the other hockey players. They wore maybe a little bit more kit sometimes and they stayed in front of the goal, of course, but that was the main difference. Their play style was still a lot like the other players instead of being kind of a unique position. They stood there, they stood on their skates, and they tried not to take one in the teeth. Franklin was different. He loved to play goalie as if he wasn't getting paid unless he hurt himself. He flung himself every which way, he dove, he slapped. He had to be different because he stood at 3 foot 6 inches, 106 centimeters. A truly, truly amazing man and one of the most worthy of that great title, Short King. This enthusiasm around the novelty of how these guys played the game not just the fact that they were black people who played but that they brought a new outlook to the game led to an extended peak for the league for about 10 years the colored hockey league entranced nova scotia and the maritimes major canadian newspapers sent sports reporters to the matches white teams as mentioned before occasionally embarrassed themselves against the black teams i mean the white teams also beat the black teams a lot. It wasn't like the Colored Hockey League was head and shoulders better, more like they had a few teams who could hang with big times and even uh, beat them. The players became local celebrities. Money was flowing into the community. And then it abruptly stopped. Venues stopped renting to the league. Newspapers stopped covering them. Whites stopped supporting them altogether. What happened? So remember how we talked about Afriqueville, how the residents felt like they had no power over what happened in their community because of the city government of Halifax? Well, that didn't stop anyone from trying to have a voice. And then they found out what would happen. By 1905, James A.R. Kinney, one of the founders of the league, was pretty much running things in the Colored Hockey League. He had also become a powerful and imposing figure in local politics, at one point flexing his political muscles to try and avoid segregation in Halifax schools. The city government of Halifax wanted to appropriate some Afriqueville land for a railroad. The community tried to push back. They tried to legally uh, protect themselves. It was hard to do because they didn't have paper deeds to the land, so they had to establish their ownership through other means, and that became quite complicated. So Kinney, being one of the few wealthy black men in Nova Scotia, had to fight hard to keep this from happening. Now the local leaders, they really wanted this railroad. They felt it would help the economy, and a lot of them personally stood to make a lot of money off of having a monopoly on freight in and out of Halifax. which tends not to be a very good reason to force people out of their homes. People say that these situations are more complex and there may be some context that isn't recorded to history that paints the business leaders in a better light. But from what we know, it doesn't look very good. So Kinney tried hard. He pushed. He argued. He threatened political consequences. He failed. The railway owners and local government went scorched earth. Local business leaders did everything they could to make it clear to Kinney and other prominent black people that they had to back down. Businesses stopped hiring black tradesmen. They had the Afriqueville Market, which was a major economic hub, shut down. This new campaign against the black community extended to the Colored Hockey League. They didn't let CHL teams have the rinks, or made them wait until the ice was nearly melted before they could get on. They made the newspapers quit covering the league. The league just couldn't continue as it had been. They had to play on rural ponds far away from the adoring crowds and relative safety of the big towns. That wasn't really a sports league anymore, more like a rec league. And thus, it died. Whenever we talk about an unfortunate thing that happened in history, there's a temptation to think what could have been. What if things didn't go the way that they had and the Colored Hockey League wasn't shut down in the early uh, 1900s? Well, who knows, really? Obviously, it would have died out at some point. I mean, there probably wouldn't still be a blacks-only church-run hockey league in Nova Scotia. Um, World War II might have ended it or the push for desegregation and civil rights in the 1950s and 60s might have negated the necessity, or some other event over the next few decades would have put it in the sports league grave with the XFL and uh, the XFL again. Instead of dying the natural death that something like this would have, it was killed, murdered by political machinations to suppress the voice of someone that they disagreed with. That's sad. It's sad for the people who found hope and appreciation in a sports league with good athletes from their own community. It's sad for black people who wanted to get into hockey and now had no way of doing that. There were no professional black hockey players. There would be no black professional hockey players in the Americas until Willie O'Ree in 1958, and then no more after him for another 15 years or so. It's sad because black people were very influential on a game that has forgotten them. It's only in recent years that the NHL has begun to acknowledge the influence and achievements of the early black pioneers. To be fair, a tweet from the National Hockey League is how I found out about the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. So they are working on it now, but still it's not widely known. And it's sad because of any number of other reasons. As you listen to this story, There's got to be something that connects with you, that you realize that there's something wrong here. Not just wrong with what a few individuals did, but wrong with humanity, that things like this have to develop in the first place. It's sad because history is sad. There are always people who get the short end of the stick. A lot of the time, it's black people. Sometimes it's indigenous people, who, by the way, were the co-inventors of hockey. The Scots brought some of their own ideas, too, and that combination kind of created the game as we know it now. The Scots, by the way, got the short end of the stick a lot of the time. And there's not a lot we can do about that right now. Black people have moved on. Hockey is not really part of the culture of black people in Canada anymore, that much. You know, that certainly are black hockey fans in Canada but um, yeah it's not embedded in the culture uh, like it used to be and that's not that important whether or not black people nowadays enjoy hockey doesn't matter what does matter is that history is unfair and that people got it got something taken away from them that they enjoyed because of something that somebody else wanted And you have to recognize that these things have happened and that they continue to have effects today. And we try to move forward with the knowledge that this is how people have been. We can't fix what happened, but we can try and make sure that with ourselves, we don't do something like that now. And that's the story of the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes. I hope you enjoyed listening to this story. So now we're going to go to some random thoughts. These are things that uh, occurred to me as I was writing the script for the episode and either couldn't find a place for them or just didn't even try because didn't uh, fit. So firstly, I have to recognize that the single biggest source for this episode was a book called Black Ice, written by George and Daryl Foste. These guys are historians, they're brothers, and they uh, focus on um, black history and the history of hockey. So this is their wheelhouse to an extreme degree. It is a very good source if you want to find out more about uh, the context of the Colored Hockey League, and they also have like... um, record of the teams and who won each year and some newspaper stuff, which is really interesting. If you want a copy, you can find it on Amazon Kindle Store for $5, or you can buy a hard copy for $919. Um, I did not read that wrong, $919 US dollars. I guess it must be out of print, and because it has that archival information, some people consider it like a, a collector's item? I don't know. It's cheaper to buy a Kindle reader and the book and, like, 60 more books and, like, a truffle and a medium-priced dog. Uh, Like a low-end poodle or something. Anyway, the book itself is an excellent resource. It's also very weird. They're excellent researchers, these, uh, the Fosties, And they clearly have a huge passion for the game of hockey and for how unfair and mistreated the people who were in the story were. The only thing is that they are not that good of writers. Um, you'll find like they'll use the same word from like one sentence to another where typically you'd want to you know vary up your expressions a little bit and they, um, they tend to uh, like repeat ideas like within three paragraphs they'll bring up some topic And they'll bring it up as if it's new each time so it kind of feels like they compiled together things that they would written separately and compiled it together and then didn't edit it to see that they hadn't uh, that they'd already mentioned that anyway none of that's to take away from the book it's just that you know some nonfiction writers are such good prose writers that they can overcome not having that much to actually say or maybe some of their information is inaccurate, but you'd still like to read it because they're such good writers. This is basically the opposite of that, where the information is generally so good that you're willing to put up with a pretty imperfect writing style. You know, and it's not like these guys are completely. Un- uh, like I said, they're very emotional. They're very. Um, they're not. Uh, they're very emotional about the topic, and so that might color some of the things that they say in a certain way. So you might get the feeling that they're not unbiased and they're not unbiased Uh, nobody is but i would still say if you like this kind of thing if you like this story definitely go ahead and read it and you know like they have this sort of um, what do you call it like uh, an advocative style of writing Um, but the opinions that they're expressing aren't that out there like they say that the city of halifax behaved in a racist way well, the city of Halifax currently admits that it behaved in a racist way. So that's not that um, controversial of a statement. And, um, you know, they they capitalize the B in black when referring to the ethnicity, which is, uh, you know, considered proper. The only thing is they do say Indians when they're referring to, like, to indigenous Canadians. But I, I don't think that's, that doesn't seem to be from what I've encountered Offensive, just kind of inaccurate and a little outdated, but anyway. Oh yeah, and I didn't mention it in the flow of the episode because, um, well, it didn't really uh, work in thematically, And but I, I do feel like I need to mention it, is that uh, there were a number of Jamaicans in Canada before the immigration reforms of the 1960s. They were called the Marooners, and a few of their descendants actually did play in the Colored Hockey League. They also have a pretty interesting history, but um, it's, it's pretty complicated, and it goes back to um, some escaped, uh, formerly enslaved people who uh, helped the British against the Spanish in Jamaica in the 1600s. They were given independent land, and then they were you know, told to, uh, in, in um, Jamaica, and then they were told to move to Nova Scotia. Uh, but a lot of them, uh, I think, later moved out of Canada So there's not that many people left of that heritage in Canada. All right, this concludes Random Thoughts, and that concludes the episode. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned for next week. See you. Bye.